Everyone on the call, welcome. My name's Kevin Goss with Early Cassidy and Schilling. I run the construction practice at Early Cassidy and Schilling. Um, I wanted to welcome you and thank you for joining us today. Um, I'm going to try to be brief in my introductions as we've set the time today for 30 minutes. Um, and I know we've car you have carved out, you know, time in your busy schedule. Um, uh, ECNS. Uh, came up with in combination with, with Keller Heckman and Manish Roth, um, the idea to provide some information, um, and in this case, today's discussion about a, a case against uh, Walmart that we thought everyone would be interested in, in hearing more about. Um, you know, when it comes to OSHA law, um, Manish is well known and has uh, been featured on TV shows um, and been co-author of different publications um, that are available out there. Um, you can find his information uh, on the on their website for Keller Heckman. Um, Manish is going to begin today's presentation, and then we're going to jump to Jeff Hickson, who is a vice president of risk control at Early Cassidy and Schilling. Um, he's going to discuss some of the resources available to you. Um, uh, and things that really uh, that Monish is going to tie into as he discusses the suit against Walmart. Um, you know, our goal is simple uh, between Keller Heckman and, and Early Cassidy and Schilling. It's really just to provide you with some information that will help keep your businesses um, and your employees safe in our era of COVID-19. Um, being that we are uh, tying ourselves to about 30 minutes here today, we do encourage you to send questions. Um, through the chat feature, um, which you should see on your screen down uh, below to the left, I believe, on your screen. Um, we we'll, won't address these during today's conversation, but we certainly will provide some follow-up. And as, uh, as the invitation has let you know, this is a two-week series. So some of the questions we may take and adjust our presentation next week to respond to some of those questions, especially if we get a lot of the same questions. So, um, Manish, I didn't give you a huge introduction, but I, I am going to uh, go mute now and turn this over to you. Kevin, thank you very much, and thank you all for participating today. Uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to participate with Early Cassidy and Schilling. Uh, we wanted to direct our conversation about coronavirus specifically to the construction sector, uh, although I think many of the lessons to be learned are applicable widely. Uh, it's, I think it's clear to say that the construction sector has some unique challenges. One of them is that they, you, you will find a, a work site where multiple employers are co-located. Each of them has their own safety protocols. Uh, maybe they're all pro producing their own uh, protective equipment. They, they're working very closely. In some cases, it's unavoidable for workers to be side by side or working uh, together in uh, electrical conduit, uh, framing. Uh, there's all sorts of construction activities that, that require people to work two or three together in close proximity. Uh, well, there was a suit that came out in Cook County, Illinois, a couple of weeks ago against Walmart by one of its, the estate of one of its employees that passed away. And we think it's extremely instructive for employers trying to manage their safety and health obligations and their insurance um, coverage profile with respect to the coronavirus pandemic and its risks, partly because Walmart is a multi-employer worksite. There's a lot of vendors, distributors, rack drivers, 
uh, and shippers and just well customers and and customers purchasing uh, third party uh, purchasing and delivery uh, companies that are coming on or independent contractor drivers that are coming on site to to all the, to perform their work. In addition, in this particular case, Walmart was not the owner of the premises. It is the tenant, which is surprising when you consider what a large piece of land most Walmart retail outlets occupy. But in this particular case, the suit was against not only Walmart, but also the landlord. And so we can see immediately some inherent similarities to the challenges facing a lot of construction, commercial and residential construction establishments, uh, when, and as well government uh, or public projects when we consider some of the challenges that Walmart faced leading up to the the fatality and then the suit in Cook County, Illinois. So when we were talking with early Cassidy and Schilling, uh, we decided that this was a good case study for our first of our two-part series. And to just walk through the Walmart suit, some of the background facts, and some of the uh, guidances from federal and state agencies that, that are implicated in this suit, because it makes a good case study for construction enterprises uh, participating in this program. And as we go through it, I think when we're talking about fatality, one of the most important things to consider, maybe one of the first things that might have crossed your mind was, well, isn't this covered if it's workplace related? Isn't this covered by workers' comp? And uh, again, one of the reasons I'm grateful to be partnering with Early Cast and Schilling, which provides workers' comp insurance brokerage and, uh, and services, and for those of you who don't know or haven't looked into it, that, that is a really critical part of your total coverage portfolio that should be reexamined in light of the coronavirus pandemic. And if your uh, carrier hasn't reached out to you and you haven't had a chance to reach out to them, uh, this, that is the kind of relationship with a broker that you seek, the kind that you can reach out to them at any time and, and get that kind of helpful guidance. Because the, the idea behind a Walmart suit is essentially an allegation that this wasn't merely negligence. This was either gross negligence or willful misconduct, such that the estate could overcome the workers' comp bar. That is to say, in all states, there is a bar to going into civil court if it's work-related, because the workers' comp system should cover those claims, manage and deal with those claims, process those claims. And in order to overcome the workers' comp bar, a plaintiff has to show um, that there was some fact which permits the plaintiff to overcome the, that bar and go straight to civil courts. And that varies from state to state. In many cases, the absolute bar, the strictest bar is that the plaintiff has to show that there was some intentional act. In other states, an employee is permitted to get to civil court on a work-related injury or fatality if they can show that there was willful misconduct. And in other states, it's even lower. It might be willful misconduct or uh, reckless disregard. So the first thing to do is to check what your state plan uh, is for, for the workers' comp bar and what the threshold is for overcoming that bar. And then uh, it's important to keep that in, in mind when developing your safety and health programs, including your program for infectious disease control. So, so that's the background, really critical fact for the Walmart case. How do they get to civil court, county court, or state court uh, 
to begin with if this is a work-related fatality? And the answer is, well, they are alleging that this was a, a wrongful death that arose out of willful misconduct by Walmart. Specifically, in order to uh, achieve a level of uh, or meet a threshold of allegation in their complaint to allege willful misconduct sufficient to get to civil court, the plaintiffs alleged that there were well-known and well-established controls that Walmart could have taken, and they didn't. And as a consequence, the the court should recognize that this was, given how well-accepted or well-received or widely adopted these kinds of controls were, the court should should accept this case into uh, the civil court system rather than kicking it back into the workers' comp system. So, so it's important to understand what kinds of specific failures were being alleged by the plaintiffs in the Walmart case. Uh, not only, again, against Walmart, but against the landlord. Well, one of the allegations was that Walmart allegedly failed to follow guidelines promulgated by the Centers for Disease Control. And I want to get into that in a moment because that is a, in that one allegation, that is a very large <laughs> set of uh, sub-allegations because the Centers for Disease Control have been busily publishing guidances related to coronavirus since uh, early March or before and updating them regularly. Every day I'm checking all of the guidances that I'm keeping track of for employers, and I'm noting what has been updated. And just this week alone, there have been a couple of really relevant uh, updates that materially change the controls or the policies that have been implemented by employers up until this week. So no matter how up-to-date your program is, it requires constant monitoring as the Centers for Disease Control constantly updates their own guidances. And again, I'll get more into giving some examples of those updates or changes as we go. So stay tuned. One of the other allegations that the plaintiff alleged was that the employer failed to cleanse and sterilize the work establishment in order to prevent infection by workers who might have come in contact with working surfaces. In construction, it's more complicated than many other types of workplaces. To be sure, at Walmart, this is also true that it would have included not only cash registers, telephones, um, point of payment devices, but it would have also included shopping carts, shelves, products, et cetera, so doorknobs. So it's complicated. But in construction, I think it's in many ways more complicated because in addition to those kinds of uh, services, you've got tools that are being shared, toolboxes, locks, locks for toolboxes, locks for tool sheds, locks as well for lockout and tagout equipment, uh, shared heavy machinery like forklifts uh, or, or cranes, et cetera, that have multiple people working to, to operate a system, uh, all materiel that requires two-man lifts. So any kind of uh, conduit or lumber or cabling that would require two-man lifts. Well, the cabling itself keeps passing through multiple hands as it gets fed through either conduits or or the eye holes in um, steel structure. And so that's being constantly manipulated. While it's true that most, in most cases that I just described, workers have already been required to wear gloves, uh, the glove itself is capable of retaining and passing on infectious material uh, 
And so, so this it's a particularly challenging environment for an employer if you consider this allegation in the Walmart case, failure to cleanse and sterilize the store in order to prevent infection by COVID-19. Another allegation was uh, in the Walmart case was failure to implement, promote, and enforce social distancing guidelines as promulgated by the governments of not only at the state end, but also in the federal level. Well, uh, certainly uh, for most of the past six weeks, the social distancing guidelines included a six-foot distance or personal protective ink, uh, equipment and face masks where that six-foot limit was not achievable. Uh, recently, some guidances have uh, distanced that six feet to 10 feet. And again, face masks where working inside of that perimeter is unavoidable. In construction, as we discussed before, there are many tasks where that's unavoidable. Uh, there are electrical processes where, for example, two people have to work side by side, one to hold a fixture in place and another to install. Uh, and that's probably also true for a number of uh, other tasks like plumbing and uh, installation of other uh, equipment. And, and so the, the social distancing guideline is, is something that employers are challenged in the construction segment more than perhaps many other sectors. Well, it's important to understand that the CDC guidelines are for, for social distancing or for employees where social distancing is practical and achievable and that for essential critical infrastructure segments or sectors, that the social distancing guidelines are slightly different. So if you are in a critical infrastructure project, then I would offer that social distancing where it's practical and achievable must be implemented, but where it can't be, the face masks must be worn. Uh, here again, in construction, respirators are often already implicated by the task, but for those tasks where it's not, uh, respirators or face masks should be required of your staff. And and I note that in the Walmart case, the allegation was not just failure to implement, but to promote and enforce these guidelines. So you've got to constantly got to have to have somebody walking the site and checking for compliance with the use of face masks or distancing. And uh, and in addition, to the extent that it's required by the employer, the you're going to be on the hook to provide the material like face masks. And that's a challenge. As we all know, that's, that's hard to come by. Uh, the next allegation that I think is really relevant here is failure to provide personal protective equipment. And we talked about that with the context of masks or face protection, face coverings. But it's also true that with uh, gloves, to the extent that the gloves retain and transmit infectious material, uh, it's important that employers continue to provide fresh sets of gloves in between shifts, if they're latex or non-latex, uh, nitrile gloves, for example. But if they're the heavy work gloves, that the there's a program where you require employees to to launder them or to rotate them uh, on at least three or four day rotations. Uh, I'll stop for a moment and point out that, as Kevin, thank you for pointing out that there is a question and answer box in the lower left corner. And for those of you who ask questions, after this program, we'll take a look at those, see how we can address them and bring them up again in the next session next week. Uh, and if it's something that, that we can answer in between now and next week, we'll certainly take a shot at it. So, so if you have questions as I'm, I'm talking or Jeffrey or Kevin are talking, 
please feel free to, to type them up in the box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen. So another really important uh, allegation raised in this case was that plaintiffs alleged that there was a failure to warn the decedent, the plaintiff, and other employees that there were individuals on the work site that were experiencing symptoms and that and that uh, those employees who were experiencing other symptoms uh, were possibly infected by COVID-19. And uh, that's a difficult one, I think, for employers because employers who, who have a, a person that they've sent home because of a possible or suspected case, there, there may be uh, a general tort liability or a general duty under the OSHA general duty clause to notify employees of that uh, site or uh, employees of that uh, employer or other co-located employees on the site. But the challenge is to, to fulfill that obligation without running foul of privacy uh, requirements under both the Americans with Disabilities Act and HIPAA's medical privacy rule to the extent that you're covered under either of them. So, so it's important to mention to uh, other workers that there is this presence of a possible or suspected case without naming the employee and simply say, hey, on the, let's say, for example, on the day shift in the uh, carpentry crew that was working in this general sector, there was an employee who was sent home because of a possible or suspected or confirmed case, uh, as the case may be, of COVID-19. And to the extent that you've been in close contact with any of the employees on that task or in that section, uh, that you should, you should know that there was this case and to be monitoring for symptoms. I don't think that you need to say more that identifies that employee. And I think that you would have suitably warned employees if you, if you phrased it in that manner. The other, uh, the other allegation in this case was that, that the employer had failed to address the complaints or concerns of other employees who had communicated to the employer that they were experiencing signs or symptoms of COVID-19. Here again, I think it's a challenging question because employers have uh, a responsibility to make sure that the workplace is uh, safe and helpful on one hand. On the other hand, they are not possessed in most cases with the kind of expertise healthcare-related expertise that, that's uh, raised in this allegation or potentially raised in this allegation that the employer ignored or failed to address complaints that an employee was experiencing signs or symptoms of COVID-19. I think that the, if the complaint is, hey, I'd like to go home because I'm experiencing these symptoms, then you've got to go through the protocol for those symptoms and if indicated by, by the CDC guidance, uh, send somebody home immediately. But if the concern is that the employee was supposed to uh, get some kind of feedback about what to do. I don't think that that's a reasonable expectation on the employer. I think that the employer ought to say, seek medical attention if you've got two or more of the seven symptoms in the CDC guidelines or any one of a cough or shortness of breath, and uh, to direct them to seek medical attention and just go home and isolate. I think that's the best an employer can do. Finally, as I mentioned before, the other allegations that I want to mention are the allegation that the employer failed to follow the recommendations by the U.S. Department of Labor, OSHA, and the Centers for Disease Control, or CDC, for how to 
uh, take precautions for employees who are working uh, and and um, may be potentially exposed to infectious material co uh, from COVID-19. So let's get into some of those. The, uh, the CDC's guidance talks about disinfection, which we talked about. It talks about uh, distancing. It talks about personal protective equipment. There are also guidances that talk about symptoms. And that guidance may be one of the most challenging, but it essentially identifies symptoms that the Centers for Disease Control think are indicative of the possibility of a COVID-19 infection. And if a, an employee is experiencing either a cough or shortness of breath or difficulty breathing, either one of those symptoms should be deemed a symptom of possible COVID-19 status, positive status. Then there are seven more that any two of them may indicate the possibility of COVID-19, of an employee being COVID-19 positive. And they, and you should be familiar with those. I will go through some of them right now. They include a sore throat, fever. Uh, they include shakes or chills. They include um, myalgia, a sudden loss of taste or smell. These, if you have any two of the seven designated symptoms in that category, that, or an employee does, then that would potentially uh, suggest the possibility of or suspected case of positive COVID-19. That employee should be directed to seek medical attention and to go home immediately and isolate. Uh, now, that, that helps identify for the employee to self-identify whether or not they may have symptoms of COVID-19. And that goes straight to the allegation in this particular Walmart case where the employee said that the employer failed to uh, address or ignored complaints. Uh, but the employee is now responsible. I think this is something that they have to be clear about uh, and that you should be training your employees on. At that point, the employee is responsible to seek medical care and to isolate. You may ask that employee at that point, well, who have you been in close contact with at the work site over the past 48 hours and develop that list? You may also choose alternatively to notify all employees at the work site. Uh, if you think that the employee has been so far ranging throughout the work site or that identification of close contact individuals is not suitably reliable, then you may decide to notify all employees that an employee at the work site specifically working this section on this task uh, had symptoms and was sent home. Uh, we don't know whether it's actual COVID-19, but it's a possible suspected case, so be, please be monitoring for symptoms for yourself. Uh, there's one more point that I want to bring up when I mentioned fever as one of those symptoms. Uh, it's, it's best that an employee identify whether or not they are feeling feverish, but it's also a common practice now for employers to ask employees to take their temperature and to report whether or not they have an elevated temperature. At the start of the day, uh, the CDC has suggested that 100.4 is a suitable threshold for a, an elevated temperature. In construction, that may be challenged by the time employees begin heavy exertion and at this time of year, in some latitudes, it's already hot enough in outdoor environments that, that elevated temperature by itself may not be a suitable uh, specific enough indicator. But, uh, but at the beginning of the day, and, and if, if the environmental conditions are uh, normal enough, 
100.4 is a is what the CDC has opined to be a suitable threshold for measuring elevated temperature. Let me keep going and suggest that at this point you've sent somebody home as a possible or suspected case uh, because of report of symptoms. Um, the last thing I want to say on that is these are very nonspecific symptoms that also describe a host of other non-coronavirus-related possibilities, like seasonal flu, uh, cough or a persistent cough may be secondary to uh, seasonal allergies. Headache is one of the symptoms, and that, that could be the result of any number of uh, underlying conditions or exposures, including dehydration or people who are prone to recurring headaches. Uh, and so, so it's important to have employees report those symptoms that are of sudden onset and that are not explainable by otherwise more likely causation or because of other known pre-existing conditions. So an employee's been sent home, let's say, because they ha have presented some of the symptoms and are now uh, presumed positive and directed to isolate and seek medical attention. I guess the next question an employer is going to, to be faced with is when that employee may be brought back. And there, the CDC has suggested that there are two possible methods for making that determination. One of them is a medical test. And uh, that medical test shows that the person is negative. Uh, two negative tests in a space greater than 48 hours. Uh, or or they've gone 10 days since the onset of symptoms. And that, and that by the way, is one of the examples of uh, CDC guidance that changed this just this week. It used to be seven days. But they've gone 10 days since the first onset of symptoms, and they've gone at least three days or 72 hours without an elevated temperature or fever, uh, without the need for fever-reducing medicines. There are a host of other questions that we can address in greater detail. We wanted to cover this program in 30 minutes because we know your schedules are busy. We wanted to, in 30 minutes, cover some of the elements that were raised in the Walmart case. And we think that that case itself forms a, a good architecture for illustrating some of the steps that employers in construction need to be taking because if they ignore all of these guidances or they're too busy to stay up to date and they don't seek the counsel of both their, their carriers, brokers, as well as uh, their, their uh, insurance brokerage, as well as uh, OSHA counsel, they, they may subject themselves to the possibility of the kinds of litigation claims that Walmart's facing uh, in the allegations in this suit that we're discussing here. So with that said, and in the interest of time, uh, I'll point out that some of the other subjects that we, we think are also relevant we'll cover in the next session next Thursday. Uh, Jeffrey, I'm sure there's a, a number of other issues that we could talk about if we had another half hour or another two hours. Uh, but I, I'm curious your thoughts because uh, everyone in the construction community knows or should know Jeffrey Hickson's uh, expertise on the subject of occupational safety and health in, in construction. So, Jeffrey, please share, share some thoughts uh, on, on some of the issues we've just discussed. Thank you, Manish. Good, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, the, real quickly, and the, the next two or three slides give you some of those resources, uh, particularly the, the, the next two slides with regard to uh, the CDC. I've tried to 
uh, identify in, uh, specific pages and so forth that uh, uh, would be pertinent, uh, particularly based on today's conversation with the Walmart case. So feel free to, to use those, uh, uh, look, look at those resources and what have you. But it's interesting uh, from, from the perspective, uh, and I'll highlight the, 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 these two uh, pages here with the, the, the CDC resources. And then a third page where we have specific resources to uh, the construction industry that were built by, uh, uh, in this case, two uh, construction-related organizations one being the uh, uh, Construction Industry Safety Coalition, uh, which is a, a coalition of about 25 uh, uh, industry trade organizations that uh, put forth uh, safety, uh, uh, health and uh, safety and health recommendations, and they developed uh, a specific plan uh, of and relating to COVID-19. So I would, I would ask you to go to that site and, and, and use that as a resource as you manage uh, uh, your folks in the field. Um, the other resource that's out there is the Center for Construction Research and, uh, and Training, CPWR. Many of you may have may be familiar with that organization there. And again, another excellent resource in, in, in that regard. But I've I've spoken to a number of peers uh, in the last few weeks, number of uh, safety professionals, and they were all challenged, obviously, in this process and what have you. But Pretty much everything that they base their uh, uh, position on and their protocol on is this, are the CEDC guidelines. And I, I would I would ask and suggest that if you're not familiar with them, go to them at this point in time and and just recapture some of the things that uh, uh, that Manish had highlighted in his uh, presentation. So I will uh, uh, turn this over to Kevin for closing out. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Manish. Um, I we threw on here just a few of the questions, and I see one that just came across, which is very similar. Um, these are just a few of the you know, hundreds of questions that, that we're receiving from uh, our contracting and, and, and almost any industry. So we'll throw those up. Again, we're going to cover uh, some of these more specifically in next week's session. Uh, we're going to hold that one to uh, 30 minutes as well. So we're going to you know, be on a pretty quick pace for this. But certainly, uh, any questions that come through on the board, we will we will take on and address. Um, uh, Manish, uh, maybe address a little bit about the the HIPAA, um, ADA, and the ADA. So um, we're going to make this available to everyone who's on the uh, online today, the presentation. So you'll have those links. So um, hopefully, we're trying to scroll those down uh, via hand, and, and you should at least screenshot of them. But we'll email this out to everyone. Um, again. Everyone's bio is there. Manish, Jeff, thank you so much for uh, doing the, the presentation today for us. And, and I hope we can uh, have everyone back here next week to really uh, cover um, the, the additional pieces that we had placed into our um, presentation. I am flipping through really quickly here um, just so you can kind of get the, the feel for everything. We don't have an agenda for next week up here, but it's part of the original um, part of the original document that was sent out to you. So thank you, everyone. Thanks for joining us on a busy day, and I hope you enjoyed the presentation today.